I'm Monty Jader with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and I'd like to welcome you to our Arab Shabbat service. Uh, as we begin the new cycle this year of the Torah portions, uh, and I have a couple of quick announcements I want to share with you. One, uh, registration is now open for the Hanukkah conference uh, coming up in early December. We have activities for kids and youth, and check the website at HanukkahEvent.com. Hanukkah is spelled with the two K's in this particular case, HanukkahEvent.com, and it gives you more information about what that will be, where it will be located, and when that's coming up in December. We'd love to have you there uh, to celebrate Hanukkah. You know, if you keep following the Torah cycle and so forth, we just go from one happy event to the next happy event to the next happy event. That's part of the cycles of righteousness, part of the cycles of life, and the Lord causes our lives to be enriched by keeping those things. So we thank the Lord again for giving us another year, another year to learn about him and walk before him. Amen. Now, I have a very, very important announcement I want to share with you. I think you're going to really like this. Um, this cycle of the teaching of the Torah, I'm giving Ephraim time to expand his teaching of the Torah portions. I'm going to give him more opportunity, and you'll see him teaching the full Torah portion and giving him the time. I'll be teaching a topical series on the book of Isaiah, which will be aired and you in the stream each Saturday morning at 8 a.m. Central Standard Time. And many people have urged me to teach more topics, and the book of Isaiah is one of my favorite books. I hope you'll join me as we explore uh, this profound prophet. Now, that's the official announcement, but let me elaborate, and I want to uh, incentivize you to check out this particular study. Even before Ephraim was born, uh, going back to 1982 and 1983, um, I, as a young man, uh, did a study on the book of Isaiah. In fact, uh, I was in the Baptist church, and they asked me to teach it, and so I had a class uh, there at the church. We called it Isaiah through in 82. We didn't make it. <clears throat> So we called it Isaiah Free in 83, and I basically studied the book of Isaiah for 18 months. Um, as a result of studying that, uh, my whole eschatology, my whole theology began to rapidly change from what I had grown up with, uh, being a Baptist, being a Protestant, uh, in, in my previous years and teachers, and I began to see things about the Messiah in that book that nobody had ever told me about the Messiah was going to do. And as a result, I discovered the Messianic movement. I suddenly went looking for other people who looked for the Messiah and spoke of the Messiah in these ways. It was not because I ran into the Messianic movement and some man told me about it. It was from the prophet Isaiah that he inspired me and caused me to go looking uh, for where the Messianic movement was at. Part of, and, and my staff have heard me uh, frequently share over the years uh, something from the book of Isaiah that is part of my stimulation, my motivation toward what our ministry is reaching out and teaching to the rest of our Messianic brethren. And they keep saying to me every time I do this, well, Monty, you need to teach that book, you know, so that we could all get the benefit of what that's about. And, of course, I've always been committed to the Torah cycle. and uh, But this year, I just really felt led 
of the Lord to give Ephraim um, his due and allow him to teach the full Torah portion. So the question was, well, what shall I do? And I have decided, I believe the Lord uh, answered my prayer and said, well, it's time to teach you the book of Isaiah. And uh, so it's going to be kind of a modified thing, a little bit of exegetical teaching. It's not going to be all 66 chapters. I'm going to introduce the book, but then I'm going to focus in on the last 27 chapters. And in the first uh, teaching, you'll understand why I'm doing that to make it a very focused teaching on the book of Isaiah. So I invite you on uh, Sabbath morning, 8 o'clock, it's when the broadcast will be available, Join me, and we're going to go through the book of Isaiah this year. And believe me, it won't be hard for me spreading that out over the next year, because like I said before, when I went and studied it before, it took me 18 months to get through it. And this time, I know even more about it than the first time I went through it. So uh, we'll have to curb my enthusiasm a little bit just to get it to fit within a year. But we should have a lot of fun doing this. I think you'll find the book to be utterly amazing. One last thing I might share with you, and this was the challenge after I had studied the book. I told my Baptist brethren, if you'll give me the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, I'll teach any New Testament doctrine you can come up with. And the reason why I could do that is because the New Testament quotes extensively from the prophet Isaiah. In fact, it is the most often quoted prophet of the entire Old Testament. So part of what we're going to be talking about is what Isaiah had to say that the Messiah was talking about, the apostles were talking about, and what is our faith, but you're going to hear it from the prophet Isaiah. So I look forward to the teaching of it, and, uh, and I look forward to having you come join me with that. Um, without any further ado, delaying our Sabbath, let's have Kiddush. We'll get our Sabbath underway and uh, enjoy our Arab Shabbat. With Ephraim's teaching, and then if you're excited and so forth, why join me on Shabbat day for our teaching of Isaiah. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family, and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Now the Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri HaGafen Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen.
Now the chamotzi, the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and bless you and thank you for the wonderful wives that you've given to us in our homes. Father, I thank you for the wonderful wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she takes care of our children, as she teaches and educates them, and as she takes care of the home and me. Father, I confess that I love her with all of my heart, and I pray that you would pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. I love her and thank you for the unmerited favor and grace that you have given me, Lord, through her. So I thank you, Lord, on this Shabbat, and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. And now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Amen. Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Bahu et Arunai Hamvorach. Baruch Arunai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha Baelim Adonai. Michamocha Nedahar Bachudesh. Nohora Techilot. Oh, Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech, ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. 
altogether. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Israel et hashabat, la'asot et hashabat, ladrotam barit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Israel ot hit le'olam, keshashet yamim asadonai et hashamayim v'et ha'aretz v'yom hashavi shabbat v'yinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed. Yeshua Hamashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha, Bechol Levavcha, Ufkol Nashicha, Uvechol Meodecha. Veheyu hadevarim haale asher nechime zavcha hayom alevavacha. Vashinantam la venecha, vadepardabam veshiftacha, vayetacha, uvlatacha, vederech ushakpika, uvkumika. Ukeshatam la ota yadecha, veheyu la totafolt binenecha, uketatama mozuzo betecha, uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Do I have a doubt that kept my forefathers out? Can I make it past the curse? Will my heart be sure when I stand at the door? Will I need my eyes to see? Oh, I don't know. Let me have no doubt that will keep me out 
of the promise you have for Sometimes I'm sure that you're at the door Then doubt comes over me When the shofar sounds will I step out Will I need my ears to be Will I need my ears to believe? Oh, I don't know how I plead. Have mercy on me. Don't let me stumble or fall. Let me have no That will keep me out of the promise you have for me. Oh, yeah, touch my eyes that I may cry. Let my tears fall at your feet. Oh, y'all break my heart so I will start to trust you and me. To trust you and me. Oh, I don't know. Of the promise you have for me, of the promise you have for me. Y'all have shown 
The path through the woods is sparkling water are oh so beautiful. Yah has shown you the path through the woods is sparkling water are oh so beautiful. Yeshua, you made me. I can see and I can speak. I can breathe and I can smell of your creation. How lovely your creation is. You took care of me when I was small, when I was sick. Now I know that I am healed and no one can tell me different. Yeah, Are oh so beautiful. Yah has shown you the path through the woods of sparkling water. Are oh so beautiful. Oh Yah, I ask that you help me heal the broken heart. For the time that I was given, I'm as happy as ever. But I know that I have. My time is come, and I will not be afraid. Yah has shown me the path through the woods of sparkling water are oh so beautiful. Yah has shown me the path through the woods of sparkling water. Baruch Shenatan Torah Torah Baruch Shenatan Torah Torah Le'amo Yisrael Mekdushato Shabbat Shalom. Welcome to another uh, week that we can dig into the Torah portion. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, to chapter 6, where our portion will begin for this week. As you open the scripture, as always, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher b'chabanu mikol ha'amim Venatan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-torah ha-amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is the second Torah portion in the Torah cycle, which is entitled Noah, and it tells the story of Noah, his ark, and the great flood. Many of us are familiar with this story, uh, whether being raised in the Christian church. We teach our kids this story. It's one of the first coloring sheets you probably ever colored in, uh, in uh, Sunday school with a beautiful rainbow and a boat with all the animals and all those things, and, and this is a story that many of us are very familiar with. But as we truly dig into the scripture, there 
there is so many more things to learn and so many more things about the character of God that he reveals to us through this story. And we learn more about the relationship between God and man as he made a covenant with Noah and with all of mankind and also with the earth through the course of this story. Our tour portion here begins in Genesis chapter 6 at verse 9, which it talks about the genealogy of Noah and how he was a just man, perfect in his generations. We'll talk about that more. Our tour portion continues on all the way through uh, Genesis uh, chapter 11. And so there's a lot of content here, a lot of chapters to cover, um, just like last week's portion of Bereshit. And um, in fact, what I'm going to do in, with our teaching here this week is uh, go back a chapter. Uh, many Torah teachers that I know never can get through all of the Torah portion of Bereshit in one week. And so what we often like to do is t- teach Genesis chapter 5 as well when we talk about uh, the story of Noah, because what that does is that gives us the lineage from Adam when the first man that was created in the garden all the way through it's several generations, 10 generations, in fact, until Noah was born. And we then we get to know who this man, Noah, who he was. Here in our Torah cycle, we've begun anew, and many of us uh, who are in the ministry, we have now come to the point where we've completed the feast cycle. Many of us have completed the Feast of Tabernacles, and we're coming down now back to our Torah teaching, and the Torah cycle has started anew. And for many of us, we've now reached the point as the appointed times have, the cycle of the appointed times have come to a close. Many of us are looking forward to a time when we can Breathe easy. We can rest and we can relax as we look forward to now the winter season um, here in the northern hemisphere, of course, and looking forward to Hanukkah. And many of us are looking for a great deal of rest and comfort and, and all those things with all the work that has been done. And the Torah is alive and powerful. And wouldn't you know that the name Noah in the Hebrew, Noah, means rest, means comfort. Now, why did Noah receive this name? Why did he receive the name that that mankind at the time was in need of rest and comfort? Well, we learn that after the fall of man, after Adam is uh, and Eve are banished from the garden, we then have the story of Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, and how Cain murdered Abel, the first murder in recorded history. And then what happens is all of mankind falls into a great deal of wickedness and sin. And the the sin of man spreads throughout the earth, and God then regrets the creation that he made. And we believe that there's a great deal of time that passed uh, here all through the life of Adam, because we know Adam lived to be over 900 years old, and he got to see many of his descendants down, that were that came after him. He was still alive during that time. Genesis chapter 5 gives us the listing of these names. And if you look and you study the meaning of the names of the patriarchs that were given in Genesis chapter 5, there's an amazing teaching that comes from the meaning of those names. As I've gone through the Torah cycle, and if you've heard other teachers say that there is no idle word in the Scripture, there is no idle number in the Scripture, there is also no idle name in the Scripture, because every uh, name has a deeper meaning that a teaching can come out of. 
Many of you might even have a story in your own families, in your own lives, that you know you have a name, and your brother has a name, or your sister has a name, and your parents might tell the story of why they had that name. Maybe it's through a couple of generations that even in my uh, family, those with the last name Judah, um, many people in my um, in my heritage, they all had the name William. In fact, my father's middle name is William because his father's um, because his father's name. Uh, middle name was William as well. And that was just a story and something that they did um, at, through the generations. And maybe your family has something similar. I believe that if you dig into the meaning of all the names in Scripture, there's a story that is told. As many have, you can picture in your family, maybe you have a grandfather. And he might sit down at Thanksgiving dinner or he might sit down and sometimes tell stories of old. Tell stories that he experienced when he was uh, when he was a young man, the things that he saw, the things he did. My father, who was in the Navy, has many Navy stories that he tells with much of his buddies and so much so that as he's told those stories and shared them, you know, and I've heard him many times over, sometimes he rolls, uh, I will roll my eyes when he starts a story that I've heard many times over. Um, and then he, he knows that he recognizes that, but that's not to say that I have any disrespect for him and the stories that he tells, but I've heard them so many times. There are some Navy stories he's told that I could recount word for word and I could retell that story exactly as he said and it was given. And long after he's gone, I could retell that story as well of something he experienced in the ancient times. That's exactly what they did. They didn't have all the technology of the world. They didn't have TV or radio or books. And as far as we know, there wasn't even written, uh, there wasn't even language, written language at the time. Um, we believe that that was created maybe sometime, maybe during this time or after the flood. But all they had was the stories and the interactions one-on-one with the people that they interacted with. And as I said, Adam lived for a great number of years. So when we look at the story of the garden and question whether the story of the garden actually was true, like, I mean, if that was really hundreds of years ago before the flood, then how do we know that was true? Well, if Adam's still alive and, and great-grandpa Adam is sitting there and talking to his, uh, his uh, you know, great-grandson Enoch, and he's telling this story, it probably was spoken so many times that it was word for word the account of what happened. And Enoch could then explain that to his son and the son and all the way down until it got to Noah and Shem. And all of these stories could be explained to these men and they could recount it word for word. That's what I believe took place. And that's why we can have confidence in the words of Scripture, even in some of these stories before the flood of what truly happened to Adam, to Cain, to Abel, and what truly happened in the story of this flood that is coming. So, like I said, the meanings of these names, and this was, I believe this was a family. This was a close-knit family. They understood the genealogy and the relationships between people. And that in the meanings of the names... There are is an incredible story so much so incredible is it that it is a prophecy of what God is going to do with mankind and what God is going to do and send his son Yeshua that Yeshua being the foundation of all of our faith that Yeshua is even present even in these words even in the stories before the flood. So Adam he had another son after Cain and Abel he had another son by the name of Seth and the meaning of the name of Seth means appointed or sometimes substituted for something. Seth had a son by the name of Enosh, and the meaning of his name was mortal. 
Then Enosh had a son named Canaan, and the meaning of that name is a dwelling place or to dwell with somebody or something. Canaan had a son. Uh, his name was Mahalalel, and which means the blessed God or to praise God is the meaning of that name. He had a son by the name of Yered, and his name means shall come down or descend. Uh, Yered had a son by the name of Enoch, which means teaching. That which you to educate or to teach something. Enoch had a son by the name of Methuselah, which many of us are familiar with that name. And Methuselah, he's most well known for being the one that lived the longest, um, that he had the longest lifespan, uh, so much so that it was 969 years that he lived. And Methuselah, he's got a different couple of meanings to his name. The literal meaning of it is man of the dart or man of the javelin. Um, and so it's hypothesized that Methuselah was actually a warrior. Um, but modern scholars consider that the meaning of his name actually means his death shall bring or that his death will come before something else. The other thing, interesting thing about Methuselah is the year that he died is the year that the flood began. So we might question whether he died in the flood or that his death was the sign that the flood was coming. And so there's a connection there between Methuselah and the flood. So his death shall bring is the meaning of his name. He had a son named Lamech, which means despairing or one that is in despair, um, also can mean uh, powerful. And Lamech was the father of Noah. And as I said, Noah's the meaning of Noah's name means rest or comfort. So. If we take all of those names and we line it up, you can tell a story. And I can put all of those things together, starting with Adam. Adam means man or mankind. And that I can tell a story in a way, in this way, where it says there will be a man who will be appointed and he will be mortal and he will dwell with us and he will be the blessed God. He shall come down teaching us and his death shall bring those who are in despair comfort. That's a story that I could tell that sounds very much like an allegory of the Messiah, that God who sends a son, who comes down, who has, who became mortal, dwelled with us. He came down teaching us and his death will bring comfort. That is all from the meaning of the names of these 10 men, the patriarchs from Adam to Noah. And so here we find the Messiah right here in our scripture, just from the story of the, of these men, men's names. Now, did they know that as they were naming their sons and did they give certain reasons for the, the each man to be named a, a certain name? Maybe. But I also believe that God had his hand on this family, that he has his hand on all of these generations of man to then for Noah to come out of this family, out of this genealogy, and that he was going to be a man who by him and his sons that all of the earth might be saved. He and Noah himself is a savior-like figure that he is the one who brought forth and was preserved so that mankind could live on beyond the flood. So fascinating things. Again, you could dig into more of those meaning of those names. Just in the first three of those names, you could tell the story about Adam, how Adam, he sinned, and then he was substituted eternal life to become mortal which is what his grandson's name, Enosh, meant. And so just in the first three names, you could talk about how the mistake that Adam made, that he 
sinned and he has substituted eternal life to become mortal. And so, again, there's more that can be dug into in each and every one of these names and the meaning of these names. I'm sure you could also look into the um, times that they lived and the, the length of time that they lived, that there were certain um, deeper meanings uh, to each and every one of those numbers as well. So this is the story of what happened through all of this time. Um, now, if we read at the start of chapter six, now we start to see what the world became after Adam sinned. If you would follow along with me. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, uh, verse 1. Now it came to pass when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, and the sons, uh, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they were beautiful. They took wives for themselves of all of whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those There were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Here we have the description of the world where... Terrible things have happened. If you look specifically that they took wives for themselves, all of whom they chose, what we believe is there was a great deal of debauchery that was going on at this time, that some translations say that they were marrying and giving in marriage, and that they there was just this, the whole idea and the concept of what marriage truly should be was not present here in this world, the here before the flood. We can actually liken that into a couple of kind of the way our world kind of looks today as well, where the whole concept of marriage between one man and one woman has just become perverted and that it has and we have the whole the world as a whole has a different definition for what marriage is, what marriage should be, and that we are marrying and giving in marriage. Well, we marry somebody and then divorce is a common thing. So we divorce them. We marry somebody else. And this is just a common thing that we experience in our uh, world that we live in today. And so that gives us warning, of course, when we look to the words of Messiah that says the end of days will be like the days of Noah. So we kind of look at our modern day today and with that kind of gives us a little bit of warning here as we go and look and what the days of Noah were like. What I actually also read out of this and what I, I look at this is that this is the work of the enemy, the wickedness and the sin that began with the with the serpent and the deception in the garden, that the whole goal of the enemy is to destroy what God has created, to destroy the goodness that God has established for mankind, for us to even the way we interact with one another. That the destruction of the family structure that God created between a man and a woman, that they would may form covenant with one another, that they would be one, that they would produce children and offspring, and that this is how man would fulfill the commandment of God to go into the world and have dominion over it and to do it and to be fruitful and to multiply. And that is how we keep that commandment. If the enemy wants to keep us from keeping those commandments, what is he going to do? He's going to destroy the family structure. 
He's going to destroy the understanding of what a man and a woman and a husband and a wife are supposed to be, how that's supposed to work, and that is what the enemy is going to work to destroy. And that's what we have in our modern day as well, that you see almost this spiritual battle that has come against the traditional structure of a family even in modern day. And I believe this has been something that has been going on for, for thousands of, of years and generation after generation, that this is the work of the enemy. And this is no different than it was here before the flood. <clears throat> the sin and the wickedness of man, so much so, was so bad at this time that even God regretted his creation. I mean, that, the, the, the way, and, and this is what you can look at, is, is God was heartbroken. Because of the beautiful thing that he did, and then he regretted the effort that he put into creating it, and that we had we had so wronged and so sinned that we broke the heart of God. Now, this is the thing where it's like when you the, the disappointment that we should feel that we have when a, when a child uh, you know disobeys and and a, and a you know parent disciplines them, and you know the the, the phrase that it's all like you know it's um, you know. A child telling his parent, his father, is all like, well, are you mad at me? And he's like, no, son, I'm not mad at you. I'm just disappointed. And, of course, that hurts way more than him saying that he's mad at you, that when you have disappointed your parent or the one that created you or that had every intention to, that has your best intentions in mind at all times, and you disappoint them. And that's what we did with God. When God gave us life, he God gave us all of these things, all of the goodness of, of the garden. And then because of the mistake that we made and we continued it, it was perpetual through these generations, the wickedness of man. And we broke God's heart. And and that is just the, the worst feeling that anybody can uh, almost some people might even say that a broken heart is, is worse than death. Because in death, you feel no pain. But with a broken heart, it's it, there's there's nothing but pain to, to be had. And God, being the ever eternal God, he we broke his heart. That is one thing that we should that has to be a reset in our brain as mankind, as human beings, with the mistakes that we make. And that's what we do when we sin before the Lord, our God, in our day to day lives. And that should be something that causes us to correct our ways, correct our mistakes. That's what we should, we should understand that when we sin before God, it's just the same thing. You don't want God to regret creating you or giving you life. You don't want to have that feeling. That would be the worst feeling you could possibly have, that, that, that God regrets that you are even alive today. So let us walk uprightly before God and just knowing that that's what our, the effect of sin has on God. He says this here at the beginning of the good book here. And says, this is what you do when you sin before the Lord our God. It says the intent and the thoughts of man's heart was evil continually. This is one of the things in Proverbs uh, chapter 6, verse 18. He says that is one of, the, one of the seven things that God is just abominable to God. And what it says in, uh, in that proverb, it says that a heart that devises wickedness or devises evil plans. And that's what it says the the men, mankind, was doing at this time. All of these things, the, the horrible things, and God is going to destroy all of creation. However, he finds one man. He finds one man by the name of Noah, who was given this name, that means rest and comfort, and he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's really cool when you look at this. The, the Hebrew word for grace is chen, which is made of a het and a final noon. 
And Noah's name is made with a noon and a het. And so Noah and grace are kind of interchangeably. They kind of read the same thing. They read the different different word backwards. And so you can look at that. And if you look at the meaning of those Hebrew letters, the uh, het represents a fence or an encasement. And noon represents life. And so you can see in the life of Noah, what he did is he basically preserved life through the life of Noah. He put him in an ark and he preserved his life. Even though he's going to judge all of mankind, his life was preserved. And also, if you look at it with grace, you almost picture kind of life, you know, wrapped up in a box or life that, that is being protected. And that that is then given to somebody. If you find grace in the eyes of the Lord, that God is giving you life that is controlled and, 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 and can be used. And so that's what all of us imagine having that testimony to be able to find grace in the eyes of the Lord, even in a world of, of wickedness and great deal of sin. Imagine being somebody who has the testimony that you have found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This goes into another teaching where we should look to the, our father, our heavenly father, and how he views us is truly how we need to view ourselves. Many of us have a poor self-esteem for one another, for or for ourselves. We look in the mirror and we don't think that we're worthy of love or value. And this is something many people struggle with in all different areas, in all different walks of life, even amongst believers. We might believe in God. We know God created us. We have his grace and his mercy. But that doesn't stop us from thinking we're not worth anybody's time. You know, when somebody we, we think that we have no value, we have to know and understand that we have to find our value in the eyes of the one who created us. That it is him, he is the chief judge who gives the true value of what it is, of who we are. And he sees a greater value in all things than we see with our own physical eyes. So we, that's just an encouraging message that in all things, look to the Lord on his view of us. What does God say about us rather than what we say about us? Because many of us have come across certain people and, and friends and enemies, and we don't have a very good value for one another, a very good value for human life, the way that we insult one another in our day-to-day lives. Well, we don't really have a good sense of what true value is, but God does. So we should always look to him at what how he sees us as well. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, this is the genealogy of man. He was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Man, what an amazing testimony that is. Wouldn't you love to have the testimony of being considered a just person, perfect in your generations? Now, that doesn't mean that he was absolutely perfect. What that truly means is he was upright. He walked uprightly before God. He did what is righteous. He was a righteous man. He did. He kept Torah and righteousness before Torah was ever written down. It was in his heart. It was inside who he was. He was a righteous man when surrounded by nothing but wickedness and sinners. That is the same testimony that we should strive to have, that we are do what is right, even when we're surrounded in a world of wickedness, that we practice righteousness, we practice justice, which is what all of us should strive to do. And this is the testimony of who Noah was. And this is the reason why he was chosen to be the one who was going to be delivered from this worldwide judgment. Noah had three sons, uh, sons by the name of Ham, Shem and Japheth. And he is going to use this family 
that was in going to preserve them as he judges the world. It's interesting because Noah was described as being righteous. It does not ever say that necessarily about his sons or his wife or his son's wives. But because of the blessing that who Noah was, the blessing of his salvation from worldwide judgment extended to his family. That's the same thing, and that's the same pattern that can go for us, that a righteous person has the ability to extend that blessing of righteousness and the blessing that comes from him doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord or being obedient to God. That blessing can extend to his family members or those that he is in covenant with. You can see this. This is very plain. Somebody who is blessed in their life, a man who maybe he's financially blessed and he's made all the right decisions and he's come into a means of wealth um, through a wholesome way. He can then extend that financial blessing to his son's sons and his sons after him. And the blessing extends to his entire family. That's exactly what happens here, that the righteousness of Noah and the blessings that he received extended even to his family. And that's something else that we should remember when we strive to be righteous before God. We're not doing this just for us. This isn't just a selfish endeavor that we want to be righteous before God so that we can dwell in his presence, that we can be with him, we can enter into the kingdom. No, this is for our children's sake as well, and our wives, and our loved ones, and our children's children, and that is why we do what we do. It's not a selfish endeavor to be righteous before God, because we are striving to do this for the sake of our children as well. So, what the commandment comes here that God speaks to Noah and he says he's going to send a flood, a flood that is going to wipe out all the face of the earth. Many of us know this story. And he tells Noah to make an ark. He gives exact specifications for the ark, what kind of wood to use, how large to make it, that it's 30 cubits high. And when it, you see in the scripture, you see a cubit. We believe that's a unit of ancient unit of measure that was about the distance from an elbow to the tip of one's finger, 18 inches or so. And that that is the size that he creates this ark. Now, um, I don't have the time to go into it uh, here in this session, but my father has a, an amazing teaching called the logistics of Noah's Ark, where he created this back in, when he was in his secular career and went through all of the exact specifications and the instructions having to do with Noah's Ark, all the animals that were to be brought, how it was to be constructed, how much food was going to be necessary for a certain amount of time, and that he has basically proven through that teaching that Noah's Ark and the success of the Ark based on its construction, based on the number of animals that needed to be on it, based on the amount of food that was necessary to be on that ark, and for the amount of time necessary for that to succeed, that he has proven that not only is it feasible, it's highly probable that it would have been successful. That you might look and say, okay, well, we're going to build an ark and we're going to bring all these animals on it, but lo and behold, the rain starts coming and we don't have enough food and all of what God commanded then no longer is successful. My father has gone through the using all of his know-how as a logistics engineer to explain that this is actually very possible and feasible. So I encourage you to look at that teaching if you've ever uh, wondered what the details of the of Noah's Ark and whether this is this was even possible. It's I believe it absolutely was possible with the based on the size of the Ark and all of the animals and all of the instruction. Again, this was because of Noah's righteousness. God is choosing him to be the one that preserves all of mankind and all of the animals that would come into the Ark. 
And so the story comes that the ark, uh, the ark is created. It's, he has about a hundred years to create this ark, and you might question whether he was able to build the ark, uh, in that amount of time. And if you go look at it, that Noah being a righteous man, that we believe he could have hired subcontractors, that it wasn't just him and his sons building this giant ark, but there could have been others that, that, that worked on the ark. Um, and obviously Noah would have been thought to be crazy in his time, being like, okay, why are you building this big giant box, Noah? Uh, oh, it's going to float? Okay, uh, you're not building it near any water, what's going to happen? And so we understand, we can look at this and understand there was probably some uh, interesting interactions between Noah and the people of his time, that he's building this giant ark because God told him to build this ark, but again, wickedness of man, they probably sneered at it and, and thought he was crazy. So then when all of the animals show up and he's bringing all of these animals in together, I'm sure they also thought he was crazy in that situation as well, because we would have had all these animals, how they would have been gathered up. Again, we look to the Lord that the Lord provided a miracle here in this place on how he was able to collect all the animals, preserve them two by two, a male and female of each animal. Actually, it's not just a male and female of each animal, but of every clean animal, there was supposed to be seven of those animals. And that's one thing that's not uh, as well understood. Many people have hypothesized whether when it says in the scripture, you shall bring all the animals two by two, male and female, and of the clean animals, seven. People have hypothesized that it was seven pairs of those animals, as in 14 total, or if seven each. Well, um, in the logistics of, of Noah's Ark, the um, one of the problems that we run into is if it was 14 of every clean animal, there would have been there would not have been enough space on the ark for all 14 of every clean animal based on their size and the, and the amount of space they would have taken and then we would have run out of room for food. And so in the logistics of Noah's Ark, we proved that if it was seven, then it would work. If it was 14, that would have been too many animals and too many mouths to feed. So I believe, and in certain translations it's very specific, that it was only seven of every clean animal and not 14. When you look at that, that should obviously adjust any of the times that we look at uh, any depictions of Noah's Ark. Uh, that, you know, we see the animals coming in two by two, and there wasn't just two cows and two sheep walking onto the ark. There should have been seven cows and seven sheep, and uh, there was only two pigs and there was only two lizards. But uh, the, the way that we look, we should adjust how we visualize these things as we read them here in the scripture. So the story comes that the, the, the flood will come. And it, and it begins raining 40 days, 40 nights. There's another miracle that takes place in here. It gives the specifics that, that Noah, his sons, his, and their wives all entered the ark at the same time. And that it says in verse 16 of chapter 7 that the Lord shut them in. There was a great door that they brought everybody into the ark. But there probably was no means for that door to be closed. And so God, through his providence, he was the one that closed the door for them. Maybe with a great wind. We don't know. But there's all these different different uh, details that are specifics as to we wonder how certain things happen, but the scripture covers that. How did they close the door? It says God is the one who closed it. So the flood comes and he destroys all the all of the uh, living things that were on the earth and the waters prevailed 15 cubits upward above all the mountains that were covered. How would we know that information? Well, one of the things that's fascinating about that with the ark being 30 cubits uh, in height and that based on the weight and the structure and the design of it, it would, it would have floated in the water that 15 cubits of the ark 
would have been below the water after the waters after the flood waters had come that the ark could have very easily scraped over the top of a mountain knowing that the that the highest mountain was still 15 cubits below the water um, one of the other questions that uh, have been asked is whether this is even possible with science or with the amount of water that is on the earth. Um, and you can go in and you can do the studies and see whether Noah's Ark actually happened, whether there was a history or knowledge of a great flood that actually took place on this earth. Is there scientific evidence of, the, of a great flood? Because this would have been a worldwide a phenomenon. And there's a couple of things to note that the amount of water that is on the earth based on the deepest uh, chasm that is in the um, that is in the ocean that there is actually plenty of water on the earth that this could have been if basically with um, earthquakes or erosion anything like that if the i've heard it said if the surface of the earth was flat if all the mountains were flattened and all of the uh, canyons in that are in the ocean were flattened out and we just looked at the crust of the earth and then how much water would be that water would cover i think it was like 900 feet all of the earth would be 900 feet below water that there's enough water on the earth to cover the earth and so that's one, you know, just fact that when you if you look at that, this could have happened. Also, when you look at fossil beds, whether it be dinosaur fossil beds or, or even uh, fish, other sea creatures, fossils of sea creatures can be found inland away from the ocean in many parts of the earth, especially in North America and in Europe as well. And that the all of these fossils when they were created, they have found fossils that are so well preserved that there's even skin and soft tissue preserved inside these fossils. Any other fo other fossils that take what science says takes thousands or millions of years to create, the thing is, is all of that organic material breaks down over time. You can see this. You can you can bury a fish, and within about you know ten years, you, you barely find any resemblance of that fish whatsoever. All of the fossils that are here on the earth all happened at a very rapid pace that there was some sort of catalyst that took place that caused them to be immediately preserved in the way that they are. So what we believe is we believe, believe with all the floodwaters that everything that there this was a cataclysmic event that caused fish uh, to, and, and other creatures to be buried extremely rapidly. Not only that, that nearly every dinosaur fossil that has ever been found has been found. The bones structure is that the, the animals with their necks arched way back, which is what they call the suffocation pose, that all of these animals died of suffocation, which a floodwater would explain that. And but what they also say is they say, well, there was a meteor strike that struck the earth and all the ash and that's what caused them to all suffocate. The problem is, is a worldwide flood also explains uh, that to be the case. One of the other one of the biggest arguments against if it comes from science on whether the flood actually happened. I looked it up online. I was looking. You just do a quick search and you're looking for evidence of Noah's flood. And this is where you will find all of the studies of all the fossils and, and all of these things that you find that are, there is evidence that there is such thing as a worldwide flood that took place at some point in time. I found a website that said 21 reasons why uh, a worldwide flood never happened or Noah's flood never happened. And you go and if you read that article, every single point of that article is all based on radiocarbon dating. 
that they say that at the time which we think the flood took place, according to the biblical record, 4,000 years, um, you know, or about 3,000 years before the time of the Messiah, and that then fossil records and sedimentary layers in the Grand Canyon, and they say, oh, well, this age of this has been recorded to be this, and they think the flood happened here, so that couldn't have happened. And every single bullet point was like that. The problem is, is every single one of those bullet points based on radiocarbon dating, if you do a study on carbon-14 dating, um, also potassium-argon dating, all of them are, com- are very flawed in their actual dating methods and what they date certain things to be. That science, if you truly, you know, we're honest about it, science does not know how old the world is and does not know how, how old anything is when they use radiocarbon dating. Um, there's a great... Um, uh, teaching or a video that I would recommend you go watch. Um, it's by Dr. Kent Hovine, who's done a great deal of creation science, where he basically points out all the flaws with radiocarbon dating, that we have carbon dated items that we know exactly how old they are, whether it be lava rock from a volcano that we know when it uh, erupted, and that it then it says that it's thousands of years old when we know it's not thousands of year, years old. And so science has a degree of error, and when they do carbon date things, they throw out all the really big numbers, they throw out the little numbers, and then they sort of just predict and project when they think uh, the carbon dating or when the, how old something actually is. They'll carbon date the same sample of something and get two different dates as well. So it's a very inaccurate way whenever you see in science that they say something is millions of years old or even you know tens of thousands of years old all of that is a is a guesstimation estimated science when it comes to radiocarbon dating so all of the disputes against what happens here in the biblical account is all with a science that is fundamentally flawed and has hundreds of percents of degrees of error and it's something that we can't put our trust in what we can put our trust in is perhaps a story or manuscripts of ancient stories. Not only do we have the Bible, the Holy Bible, it talks about a great flood. There are also other ancient scripts and and pieces of literature that describe a worldwide flood. You might have heard of something called the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a stone tablet, what's believed to be the oldest known literary work that comes from the area of Babylon. And it's a Babylonian tale that talks about how that there is a God. They give this name to the God and they preserved a man through a great flood. And it's not the only one that other ancient cultures have stories of a great flood. You put all of those things together to understand that, look, there's all the people have come to believe that this took place through the passing down of stories and that this it's it's more likely based on the number of witnesses that we have that a great flood actually happened more so than what any specific scientific field can prove. So when we look at this, I would like I look to it and I believe that this happened. And through those evidences, some people might question that you might have a neighbor or a friend that questions whether we can trust or believe what here what is here in the scripture. But all of if you truly dig into it with an open mind and and hold science accountable to what they say and look at all of this evidence here of where we got all of these words, these stories, these descriptions, you have to come to a conclusion and believe that. There's something that happened here. And what we have here in the scripture is the story of this flood and Noah being delivered by God. One of the other things that's interesting here, as the waters receded from the earth, uh, I've always wondered and questioned 
how all the waters receded, if the earth truly could have absorbed all of the water that had come down. Because it says God opened up the heavens and the rains came down. Scientifically, we believe that there was a water canopy that was above the earth that protected the earth from solar radiation. Solar radiation being the primary thing that causes us to age. And that because there was a water canopy, that's what allowed for human beings to live for as long as they did. But also that would explain where all the water came from in the first place for the flood. It was floating above us in the heavens, the Hashemayim. In the heavens, there was a water canopy, and that's what fell and caused all the water to come and flood the earth. And then how did all the water recede? Well, through whether it be earthquakes or whether it be, you know, even the, the idea uh, that the earth actually expanded and all the chasms of the earth opened up and swallowed all the water. It doesn't say that specifically in the scripture, but it's not unfathomable to think that that's how the water receded as well. It also says in verse 2 of chapter 8, it says, The fountains of the deep, the Lord caused them to be to stop as well. And so some of this water, and what some people believe, is some of this water also came from the earth uh, as well already in the first place. So the story goes, when Noah comes out of the ark and through all the blessing that God has preserved them, we then have a whole new, almost a a reset of the covenant God has made with man. God made a covenant with Adam. Adam broke that covenant. There was through, through the sin that took place. And there's a whole new set of commandments and covenants that God now gives through Noah. And one of the things that happens is when Noah comes out, he then builds an altar and he makes sacrifices to to God with all of the clean animals. Obviously, we had extra clean animals to make sacrifices. If we only had two cows, then we wouldn't have any cows here in the modern day had he sacrificed one of them. So with the extra clean animals, he was able to make sacrifice to God. And all of this all lend itself to the covenant that now God was making with Noah, that now through Noah, through his sons, that now he would they were to populate the earth. Let me now read here at uh, verse 20 uh, here at chapter 8, and we're going to talk about some of these covenants and the way that it's laid out. And what we have established here now is God's covenant with the earth and with heaven and earth. Follow along here. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings to the Lord. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. This is God's covenant with the earth. Remember, in the curse that after Adam had sinned, it said, The cursed is the ground for your sake, and that you are to toil in the earth if you are to then reap anything out of it. Here, God makes a covenant with the ground that he will now not curse the ground for man's sake and that he will now provide for the earth seed time, harvest, cold, heat, winter and summer, day and night. Now you question, what was the difference here now after the flood versus what was before the flood? Now before the flood, did did the plants yield seed just from fallen fruit and continue to grow? I actually question whether that was the case, that man had to work for every bit of food back before the flood. That would have lent itself to the wickedness and the bitterness that became in the creation. But after the flood, God then makes this covenant 
The ground is no longer cursed, but I will now provide for the ground, seed time, harvest, cold and heat. And this is when we have the establishment of, of seasons. That before the flood, based on this, we can understand that there perhaps wasn't seasons as we understand them to be. In ancient times, before the flood, there was a garden and it lived and it was there forever. There was no understanding that there was going to be a winter where everything was going to die off. Here, now, this is the, how the world is now different. And this is where God's covenant with heaven and earth begins here, which later on in our Torah cycle, God will use heaven and earth as a witness of his other covenants that he makes with man. And so this being, this being the first covenant made after Noah comes out of the ark is perfect, is, is perfect in the sense that this covenant is established first so that our, his covenant with heaven and earth can be a witness to covenants men made with man. In chapter 9, he now goes in and now is making covenant and commandments here with Noah. He says to him, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the field, on every bird of the air, and on all that moves on the earth and all the fish of the sea. When I see this, it makes me sense that when you go into the wild and a fish or another animal sees you, it's skittish and it runs away. And so before this, that probably wasn't the case. Animals interacted with people as comfortably as they could. That's why Moses was able to get all the lions and all of the bears onto the ark because the interaction between man and animal was different. Now, he then says, this is a covenant now made with the creatures of the earth. They will now have fear and dread of mankind. And that then it then goes into that says, I've given you these things that you can eat the flesh but you cannot eat the flesh with the life. This is the covenant immediately made with, or the commandment made with Noah, that you're not to eat blood. But man in this time, as, we, as far as we know, did not prey on the animals to eat of their flesh. But in here, if they do, that they should not eat the life that is in the blood. That belongs to God. This is God's portion. This is kind of the new version of the commandment God gave to Adam to not eat of the tree. God told him, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because that tree belonged to God. That portion belonged to God. And in the case of now, this commandment now being given to Noah, now that we've sort of reset things, it's now saying, you shall not eat the blood of the animal. It's the same sort of commandment in the way that in the modern day, eating the blood of an animal is equivalent to eating of the fruit of the tree that God told Adam not to eat. So again, we have this cycle here with Noah that he's in, with Adam. He made the earth. He then made, made Adam. He then gave Adam commandments to follow, and then the sin took, takes place. What we have here is he preserved Noah. He made covenant with the earth and the ground. Now he's giving Noah commandments to live by. It's a cycle that continues on from one story to the next. And it then talks about how you shall not murder. You shall not murder one another, and that you, this is the covenant of life that God has given to Noah. It then continues on. He says, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature. This is the covenant that he's making. And then he gives us the sign of the covenant. And this is where many of us know the sign. The sign of God's covenant with Noah is the sign of the bow or the rainbow that appears in the sky. And he says, this is the sign which I make between you and every living creature for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Every good covenant has to have some sort of sign or symbol of the covenant. In a marriage, 
covenant, you have your wedding ring that is the sign of your covenant with your wife. And that there's also a meal that takes place and all the things that come into creating a covenant. This covenant with Noah is not unlike that as, at all. God gives a sign. He gives a rainbow. I've always loved this talking about why a rainbow is such an amazing sign of a covenant between God and man. The, that word bow in the Hebrew is kesheth. And that word is made up of a kuf, a shin, and a tav. And if you go in the meaning of those letters, literally what it is, is it is the what has come after the destruction is now a mark or a sign of the covenant. What the kuf represents the back of a head or what has come to pass. The shin represents destruction and the tav represents a mark or a sign of a covenant. And so this, the, the meaning of that word is fantastic because after the destruction, here's the sign. And that is a perfect, amazing thing. The other fascinating thing about rainbows, I love pointing this out, is that rainbows are very interesting phenomenon. It is this photonic, intangible phenomenon that is solely based on the observer to be able to see a rainbow. What it is, is it's sunlight reflecting off of water droplets that are suspended in the sky. And then it reflects back out of those water droplets, then into the observer's eyes, and it breaks up the light into a prism and produces color. Something else I learned just recently is fascinating, is that the angle in which the light enters the water droplets and then refracts off the inside of the droplet and back out is 42 degrees. I love the number 42 because it has so much meaning to not only 42 journeys in the wilderness uh, that the children of Israel will experience. It also literally means uh, by the, the factors of the number, God's perfect plan for man. And so when you tie in, when you find the number 42 in nature, it always lends itself to God having his uh, his mark on that. So the fact that light comes into a water droplet and then exits at exactly 42 degrees to, to produce a rainbow is fascinating to me. It also is, like I said, completely contingent upon the observer. You can observe a rainbow at a certain distance, and even if you see somebody or something that is, in your perspective, below the rainbow, if they're standing there, they can't see the same rainbow you see. They would be looking off to the east and they would recognize a rainbow and they would have a different rainbow than you would because it's solely based on observation of the, of the sight and the point of the observer. So what we have here is a covenant, a sign of a covenant that is individual and it's also corporate as well because you can all stand in one place with your brethren and you can look off to the east after a big rainstorm with the sun behind you and you can see a big rainbow and you can turn to your brother and say, do you see the rainbow? And they say, yes, I see the rainbow. It's a beautiful, look at that giant rainbow. In fact, it looks like a double rainbow because of the scientific phenomenon, the reflection, that the light is so strong that it actually produces two. And so you can stand side by side with your brethren and say, we all see the sign of the covenant. But... However, each rainbow is different for each person because it's all based on observation. So it's also individual to you. So God has made a sign of a covenant that not only is a covenant with mankind, but it is with you personally, individually. And that's just because, and that's just the sole fact of using a rainbow as a sign of the covenant. I love doing this with my children. If you're ever on a beautiful sunny day with the sun overhead and you're watering your grass and maybe you turn your little uh, attachment on your hose to a mist uh, uh, attachment, 
setting, and then you've missed the air with all these water droplets. You can see a rainbow. You can produce a rainbow that you can see, and you'd be like, there, there's my sign that God made covenant with me, and it can encourage you. And I can talk to my children who are on the other side of the yard, and I can say, hey, guys, come over here and see the rainbow. And they're like, I don't see a rainbow. And I'm like, well, you have to come here, stand next to me, and see, and I then, then pose the water, and they can then see, ah, I see it. I see the rainbow. And that's a spiritual principle, in fact, that you sometimes, to see the sign of God's word and the sign of God's covenant, you have to be standing side by side with somebody. You have to be looking at it from the same perspective. And that goes for all of God's word and all of his instruction that he gives to us in his word, that you have to come from the same perspective to have the same understanding. How many other brethren have you ever met and said, hey, I, I read this in the scripture. This means this and this. And they're like, well, I've never read it that way. I don't I, I, I think it believes, you know, this or, you know, I believe uh, Yeshua came and he did away with all the covenant with with Israel. And it's like, no, if you read your scripture here in this way, then it then, then it says this. Like, well, I don't really believe it that way. And this is an argument that you might have with somebody who doesn't believe exactly like you are. What they're spiritually doing is they're not looking at the sign of his word and his covenant. From the same perspective. It's like somebody who's standing in one place who can see a rainbow based on the sun and another person standing somewhere and they can't see the rainbow because their view is blocked in some way, form or fashion. So that is a spiritual principle that sometimes we have to stand side by side with one another as brethren in a community to recognize the sign of the covenant. So, the, our story continues, like I said, there's many chapters here in our Torah portion. I'm trying to uh, cover at least something of all of it. Um, where there's then a story about Noah and his sons, where Noah, which we believe Noah suffered from what is called survivor's guilt. He, built a vine- he planted a vineyard and he became a drunkard later on in his life, unfortunately. And then there's one of his sons, the son by the name of Ham, who uncovered his nakedness, which was a great curse, and a curse was put upon Ham and his sons, um, he had a son by the name of Canaan, who would actually become the name that would be the name for what we believe is the land of Israel that Abraham would later come into. And there was a curse put upon Canaan and all of his descendants because of this sin. But a blessing was put upon the other sons, Shem and Jepheth, um, that because instead what they did is they walked in backwards and they never undercovered the nakedness of their father and they covered him up and they received a blessing because of it. And so what we have here in chapter uh, 10 is we now have the, the lineage and the genealogy of men that came after these men. And if you look at the descendants of Ham, who was cursed, we see many, many kingdoms that would later become enemies of God and enemies of Israel. Out of the sons of Ham would come the Cushites, which would later become what we believe is the area of Ethiopia. Also, Mitzrayim, which means trouble, but we also know Mitzrayim would become later the Egyptians. And also the Canaanites came out of there. Out of Cush became the king Nimrod, who we know in the scripture that even though he was a, who was a mighty king among men, he that here was, he was evil in the sight of the Lord. And also Nimrod's one of those really underused insults that you might remember to use sometimes. Um, that's a joke. Nimrod um, is another enemy of God that all came from the sons of Ham. Also, Nineveh, which was a man that would be then later be named that built the city of Nineveh, that 
that came out of Ham as well, and also Kasluhim, which out of them came the Philistines. And also, out of all of this lineage, also is the ones who built the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, I mean, every single name that I listed here, if you've studied any amount of scripture, I'm, I'm just stating the, the, the rogues gallery of all the enemies of Israel here, of all, basically from Nineveh to the Philistines to Sodom, Gomorrah to Nimrod to Egypt to the Canaanites and everyone after them here listed in Genesis chapter 10, here we have all the enemies of Israel all came from this line that was cursed immediately following the story of Noah. So fascinating the way all of that came out. In chapter 11, we then have the story of the Tower of Babel, where all the people of Israel who spoke, all the people, not of Israel, but all the mankind at the time after the flood, they spoke one language, they spoke in one speech, and they decided to build a tower to God so that they could, uh, so that they could meet God or to bring God down to them. There, again, this is the repeat and the cycle of mankind continuing to sin even after covenant's been made with, from God to man. We still have a tendency that we devise wicked things in our heart, even from our youth, as the scripture says, and that we are trying to make God and create, create God in a box our image of God and not what God has instructed us to do. So it was at this time that we believe, and it says that all the people that God came down and he confused all of our languages to where we now have all the different languages of the earth. We believe this took place in the area of Babylon, which is Babel being the root of that word. And that, like I said, from Babylon, I mentioned before the Epic of Gilgamesh, where we have these other stories of this ancient flood, where names of the God has changed and names of the people that interacted had changed. Do you think it's possible that because of the Tower of Babel and the confusing of languages is the reason why we have similar stories, yet all the names of the people and places have changed? That that's really what I believe is when we have conflicting stories that sometimes relate to scripture and there's more of them throughout the history of time that because the Tower of Babel, it makes perfect sense why we have different languages, different names and different um, titles for various parts of scripture and parts of history than from one race to the other. That makes perfect sense. When the scripture says the Tower of Babel took place, that's why there's the conflicting stories. But then we can look and believe and know that if there is the one true God who made us and created us, that we need to continue to look to him for what he has said, what he has instructed us. And he is the one who speaks the one true, the pure language, the pure language of Hebrew here that we have in our scriptures and that we look to him for true, what the truth truly is and let the Holy Spirit guide us in what the truth of what truly happened, then that's one of the ways that we need to look at our scripture here. If we finish off with chapter 11 of uh, Genesis, we then have the story of Shem and it's through his genealogy for many generations all the way down that he will, he will have a great grandson of of Abram and next week we'll begin our story of Abram who will have his name later become 
Abraham. And there will be a whole new set of blessings and covenants that God will make with this man, a descendant of Shem. One of the things I encourage you to do, again, there's a whole listing of names and ages of all of these men, which I believe that there's a whole nother teaching that can be drawn out of all the names and the descendants of Shem, from Shem all the way to Abram. And the other thing, too, is if you look at the study here, and this goes back to building our confidence in the words of the scripture that we read. If you look at the ages of these men, Shem was actually still alive. The son of Noah was still alive, even all the way to the time of Abraham, Isaac, and even Jacob. So back to when I said that, how do we know and can trust that these stories are true? Well, we have a first-hand witness who lived a 100 years before the flood in, the, in Shem, who then was still alive and who could speak, teach, educate, and tell all the stories of old to the men of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when we look to the stories and we look and it's like, how do we know that when the when these were finally written down, how do we know the stories are true? We have first account witnesses of the time before the flood that spoke to the patriarchs that we know when we say the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We know who those guys are and we can relate and we can look to the time at when they were and how long ago they lived and know that they heard from Shem describing all these things. And through all of those stories and the ages of those men. To know when Moses wrote down this Torah and all of these words that we can trust that they are accurate stories and descriptions because there are not that many degrees of separation between the men who experienced these things to the men who finally wrote it down for us to read and for our benefit to be had. So this is now the story. These first two Torah portions here in our Torah cycle, there's a lot of meat in them. There's a lot of stories and a lot of deeper things that can be studied. All of these things are what some consider, and my father calls tangential theology, that we do. Can we really base all of our theology on all of these things? We can study some of them and they're still that we question how they truly are. What we need to look for and the greater example that God gives us through the rest of the stories is the covenants that he made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who later would become Israel. And that all the way, all of them point to the leading of Yeshua, the Messiah, that they are the fulfillment of all of these covenants of old. We have to look at this story as one whole story. If we focus on just one specific aspect of it, we have a chance of missing details and missing what God is truly trying to teach us here in the scripture. So I encourage you that we this is all one story and it's only just begun to where now when we go into the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the renewing of covenants, they all build upon what was originally established with Adam and with Noah as well. So what let this be kind of the, the, the foundation, the cornerstone of all the other instruction that comes down, only to know that Yeshua was present in all of these stories as well, the true chief cornerstone. But let these stories be what builds us up and gets us to the covenant that God reveals to us and to mankind. And we're looking forward to that as we go into the study of Abraham, his life, and his descendants going into next week's portion. Amen? All right, let us go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for your teaching, your instruction. Father, so many words and so many things that you have done in the past, Father, and all the stories of old, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for Noah. We thank you, Lord, for that you found grace uh, in your eyes, Father, through him, and that he was righteous, Lord, and that it was through him that all of mankind might be saved and preserved. And so, Father, we thank you for the life and the covenant that you have given to us, Lord. 
in all the things that you do in our lives, Father. We May we look to you for all of our guidance, Lord, and may we always look to you and how you view things, Lord. And that, Father, may we be righteous and just and upright in a world full of wickedness, just as Noah is, Father. Teach us to be as he was, Lord, and continue to work with us, make covenant with us, Lord. And we thank you for the signs of the covenant that you've made with man. We thank you for all the blessings you give to us, Lord. And may we learn more as we go through the Torah cycle this year, your word, your instruction, through all the stories that we might read, Father. May we be blessed, may we be encouraged, and may we be strengthened in our most holy faith in you. So we love you, bless you, and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet Fachai alam natah betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-Torah ha-Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around saying, yes, but Shalom, everybody sing. Shalom. Put a smile upon your face He's 